this morning we'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 2 and 3, so I'll start off with 2. Pleasures are meaningless. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. This was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now we go to Ecclesiastes 3, verses 10 to 14. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing, sorry, nothing, Nothing that can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it that people will fear him. As musicians take their seats, we'll sing two songs later on. I want to invite you to uh, have your uh, Bible open, please, as we look into the book of Ecclesiastes once again. It's a strange book, as we were thinking last week. It really is like a, a set of smelling salts that you might give to a boxer who's dazed. It's a book that pulls no punches, sticking with that metaphor. Because it's the only book in the whole Bible that's written from the point of view of a sceptic. Someone who looks at life and says, this is not all there is. Or someone who looks at life and says, I don't understand how this world gets pieced together. I don't understand if there is a right or wrong. I think that all that I can taste, feel, taste, smell, touch and enjoy, that is the extent of life. And if you say different, if you say that there is a God, and if you say there is life after death, when then you really don't know what you're talking about. It's written from a sceptic's point of view. And as I said last week, it's written as a book with loads and loads of questions and apparently few answers. And the rest of the Bible provides the answers to the question that the sceptic wrestles with. But there is a difficulty. If you were to sit down this afternoon and read from chapter 1 right through to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you would struggle with the question, who is writing? One of the difficulties you'll find is this. 
It's a little bit like a masquerade's ball. It's a little bit like an actor or an actress who are playing on uh, the theatre stage more than one character. What do I mean? At the end of chapter one and into chapter two, you'll find that uh, the writer is putting on the mask of a sceptic. He says, this is what I'm going to do. This is the button I'm going to press. This is the door I'm going to go through right to the end of it. This is the road and journey I'm going to take and travel. But then, at the beginning and at the end of the book, he puts on a different mask and he acts as a narrator. And he starts to say, if you follow this way through, if you go down this road, if you go down this path of pleasure that we look at today, there are deep problems that you all face. So as we wrestle with this little passage today, we need to think that there are two masks, there are two postures that this person who is acting as if he were a sceptic is trying to help us think through. He's a believer, but he's acting like a sceptic. And he's saying, you need to have the intellectual credibility to stick to your guns and go right to the end of the road, whether it be work or pleasure, whatever it may be, what is life really all about? And today it's pleasure. Now look, if you were to go and knock on doors and deliver some information for church, if you were to speak to your friend at the pub or at the school gate, uh, you would say something like this. What do you think is the big problem with the world? And they may say, well, I think it's the problem of pain. I think it's the problem of evil. I think if there is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Perhaps you'll get an answer like that. One answer you will not get is the answer that we're going to look at today. I think the problem with the world is that there's too much pleasure. I think there's too much enjoyment. I think there's too much fun. No one would say that. But here in our passage in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes and into chapter 3, the writer wants us to grapple with the problem of pleasure, not the problem of pain. He wants us to think about the problem of pleasure is just a bigger problem it's just a bigger problem as the problem of evil and suffering. The problem of pleasure. And I want us to think about why. Why is it a problem? It's there in the first three verses. The first issue with the issue of pleasure is what it promises. What does pleasure promise? Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. I thought in my heart, chapter 2, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven or under the sun during the few days of their lives. He says, verse 1, come now. It's a new beginning, not just to a new chapter, but it's a new effort, it's a new imperative, it's a new trial in the man's, in the sceptic's life. I'm going to try something different now. You can see that from the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, he says, I'm going to use my mind, I'm going to use all my mental energy and strength to discern how the world works, to discern if there is a meaning to life, to discern if it's not 42, like uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says it was. Why are we here? I'm going to use all my effort and mental energies to work out if there is more to life than just living under the sun. He takes on the posture of John Lennon. You know John Lennon in Imagine? He spoke words of heresy. This is what he said. He said, I want you to imagine life without heaven. 
Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell, no eternity. Just this life. Imagine living just for today. That's living life under the sun. John Lennon could have written, perhaps even to better music, Ecclesiastes. He said, imagine if this life is all there is and have the intellectual credibility to stick to your guns and to go right to the end of the path you've chosen. If this life is all we have, it is futility. But I want us to explore pleasure. And pleasure is important because because if there's no meaning to life, then this life is all there is. If life is under the sun is all there is, then let's get as much enjoyment as we can. If there's no answers to the big questions of life, if there's no ultimate right and wrong because there's no God, if there's no detailed understanding and explanation of why I'm here, why people die, why suffering exists, then let's just all go to Vegas and spend all we have. And if not Vegas, Blackpool. And if Blackpool, London, let's go and enjoy ourselves. Let's pursue pleasure. That's what happens when you live in a society like the Western world today, when there's nothing bigger to live for than yourself. Pleasure becomes king. If there's nothing more than well, if there's no reason to die for, if there's no sense of national identity, if there's no one you love who you would sacrifice your life for, if there's no one to live for, if there's no one to die for, then why not just, why not just go to the max, not on Pepsi, but on pleasure? Because there's nothing bigger than you. There's no answers to the big questions. You still haven't found what you're looking for, to quote another song. If our wisdom is all we have, if there's no objective truth, then everything becomes subjective and pleasure is king. But why did he turn to pleasure? He says, verse 3, come now. I'm going to deny myself absolutely nothing. I'm going to enjoy everything the world has to offer. But why did he turn to pleasure? And this is important from verse 3. He turned to pleasure not just for pleasure, not for a high, not just to forget with a bottle of white lightning on a Friday evening. He turned to pleasure because verse 3 tells us he wanted to find a sense of worthwhileness. Why am I here? Why am I here? I've tried, end of chapter 1, to use my mind to work out, to read all the books that I can, to find out why I exist. And that didn't work. So now I'm going to try pleasure and see if I exist for pleasure. See if that gives me any answers at all. Now what does that mean? You may think, oh, pleasure, that means hedonism, big word. It means just doing whatever you can, maxing out your credit card, experimenting with drugs, having as much sex and relationships as you can. Is that what it means? Verse 2 is important. Did you notice verse 2? It has two words that we need to understand. Laughter is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Two words there, laughter and pleasure, that we may think are synonymous. We may think they're just the same meaning with two different words, but they're not. And this is important. Laughter, laughter is a word for a really wild party. Your parents have left, you've got free reign of the house, you've got all the resources you want, no one's going to check up on you. This is not a suggestion for my daughter to do or anyone else's children. You go to the max, there's no problem. No one will find out that what you've done is wrong or right. 
It means you lose your discernment. It's a wild party. I mean, everything you can imagine and dream of. But pleasure, pleasure is different. That word is different. The second word is more a sense of refinement. You can get pleasure not from uh, a bottle of white lightning. You can also get pleasure from a fine bottle of claret. You can get pleasure as a working class person, emptying a bottle of cider on a Friday night and a kebab and not remembering where you left your wallet, or you can get pleasure as someone who's middle class at the National Trust on a Sunday afternoon listening to jazz in the summer. And here's the real challenge to us in middle class Epsom and Yule. The writer in the Ecclesiastes is saying, don't you dare look down on lower class people. Lower class people don't think you're any better than middle or upper class people. You're both the same. You can pursue pleasure in a lower class way or a middle class or an upper class way. And it's just the same pursuit. They're the same. You can live for relationships and all that that offers. You can live for work and think, I'm going to do this job which I hate, but it pays so well that in the future I can get what I'm really looking for, which is that speedboat, and that's what I want. And then I can get my golf handicap down as well. These are not just my idols. I'm not speaking too personally, but I do like golf. Do you see what he's saying? Pleasure and laughter. It's meaningless just the same. It's the pursuit of pleasure. Whether you're a young person, a middle-aged person, or an older person, there are so many ways of pursuing pleasure in a respectable, Epsom and Yule type way. And he says this, are you living just for a feeling? Does whatever your poison is, does it give you a sense of well-being, verse 3? Are you looking to any one thing to give you a sense of life, to forget why you're here? Because really, it's not just pleasure that you're looking for through that. Verse 3 says you're looking for a sense of worthwhileness. And if you do that, pleasure will always fail. But why? Why? One of the things as we look at why pleasure fails to understand is uh, from verse 10. From verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Nothing my eyes desired. I could have whatever I want. Who is this that is writing? Probably King Solomon. Most people who understand the Bible agree with that. And we need to understand who he is. He is the equivalent of Rockefeller, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Roman Abramovich. He's a, a Getty type person. He's a Howard Hughes type person, in the sense that he had endless resources. Now, why is that important to understand? Look at verse 10. We think this person is so far removed from us because he can say, I denied myself, nothing my eyes desired. And we can look down on him and we can think we don't resonate with his experience because our problem is we don't have the resources that he has. But friends, we can do just the same thing. We can want to go just down the same roads. And this king of Israel is saying, I've got all the resources. I can get houses, I can get servants, I can get vineyards. I have so many possessions, verse 7. Herds and flocks, that's saying, I've got a huge bank balance. And I've gone all the way down the road of pleasure. And I've got to the end. And let me tell you, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It didn't work. I had absolutely everything and it was not enough. That's what he's saying. I had all the money that you could imagine. 
silver, they had so much gold, it was like silver. So much refinery and refinement that it was, it was just bountiful. And we can be tempted to think, if only I had more money, I would be happy. Then I could get a personal trainer and then I would lose a few pounds. If only I had more resources, then I could send my children not to that awful state school, I could go private. If only I had more resources, I could get just a bit of a better holiday. My life would be just 5% easier. I don't want a lot. And friends, the writer is saying, I've tried it all. And the problem is not how much money you have. The problem is with the path you're on. And the only reason I can say that with authority, says the writer, is because I had all the resources that you don't have and I've gone to the end of the path and it's still empty in my heart. I had all that you could wish for and it wasn't enough. Do you see? Our problem is we think, if only I had just a bit more, if only I had 10% more salary, if only I had 10 years more, if only I had 10 pounds less, then it would be okay. And the writer says, don't be fooled, friends. I had all the resources the world could ever give me. I went down the path of pleasure, wine, women, and song, and it was not enough. And it will never be enough. I challenge you. You uh, go to the Ebersham Centre, you pick off any biography of a Rockefeller type, or you go and Google the Daily Mail or whatever paper you read online and you look up the lottery millionaires. You read their stories, those that have got more than 50 million, more than 1 million, and 9 times out of 10, if not 10 times out of 10, this huge windfall they regret. It brings heartache, it brings hardship, it brings sadness when they thought it would bring joy. Why? Because it's Ecclesiastes. I've gone down the path of pleasure, not just a few steps more than you, I've gone right to the very end, and it still doesn't satisfy. Our problem is that we are still under the illusion that if we just had more, their answer is we're under no veil, no illusion. We've gone to the end, and it's not enough. You ask Richard Branson, and he may say when I'm on Necker Island, with his millions enjoying his uh, Paris ending and whatever else he gets up to, it's not that he's unhappy because he's rich. Ultimately, he will be unhappy, whether he realises it now or not, because there's still them, and there's still emptiness that chapter 3 speaks of, and they're right at the end of the path of pleasure. Because in our hearts, money will never plug the gap. Alcohol will never fill the void. A relationship will never quench our thirst, not for just temporal matters. God has made us, he's made us with a longing for transcendence, not just imminence. He's made us with a longing, not just for the here and now, but for the eternal. Chapter 3 tells us that. We long for something greater than ourselves. We long for something that is not like the wind, that we can't grasp, not just like a vapour. We long for something glorious. We need something solid. Pleasure will always fail us. It's at least a couple of ways. It says in uh, verse 3 and verse 9, pleasure, pleasure will fail to distract us. Look at verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind was still guiding me. Down to verse 9. 
I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He's saying pleasure, whatever it may be, however you pursue it, it will always fail to distract you, ultimately, from the fact that, from the fact that there is objective truth, but we run away from it, that there is right and wrong, but we want to ignore it. Pleasure will always fail us in that way. Pleasure will always fail us, ask any addict. It fails to satisfy. Verse 11, I looked at it all and everything was meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. It can't be done. C.S. Lewis speaks of this very helpfully in his little book called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. In it he says, books, music, We thought books and music had uh, beauty, inherent beauty in them. But if we trust them, Lewis says, they will betray us. For they are not the things themselves. They're only like a scent of a flower we have not found. They are an echo of a tune we have not heard. They are news from a country we have never yet visited. The pleasure you derive from seeing an amazing performance on the stage, the enjoyment you have from listening to Spotify on some great headphones when everyone's out of the house, it's a sign that we were made for something greater. It's a longing for a country we've not yet seen. It's a longing for transcendence that our marriages, if we're married, point us to. Our careers, when we work hard and we get a sense of enjoyment from giving pleasure to other people, It's just a signpost, the word that Andrew and Deborah used earlier. But our problem is we still live under the veil of illusion that if we just went further down the path of pleasure, it would be enough. And Ecclesiastes and the biographies in the Ebersham Library say, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. It's the problem of pleasure. But pleasure, as Lewis says so helpfully, points us beyond. It points us beyond. When you... uh, get into chapter 3, you see that pleasure points us beyond. Look at uh, verse 11, his famous sentence where every clause is very important to consider. He, that's God, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. First, clause, first part of that sentence. The writer says, God, because he's an amazing creator, has made the world a beautiful place. Whether it's a night sky, whether it's a school of fish, whether it's a mountain range, whether it's Wisley Gardens, wherever it may be, God has made the world a beautiful place. He says that in the beginning of that sentence. There is beauty that our hearts can enjoy and delight in, whether it's music or whatever it may be. God has made us to enjoy the world. But then look at the second part. For all the beauty that there is, there is a longing that comes from our hearts when we engage with the beautiful world that can become an addiction. There is something beyond that that will never satisfy us. The beautiful world is not enough. It's just a signpost to the second clause that God has put eternity in our hearts. Now, there have been books written about this sentence. But I'm a very man of simple brain, like Winnie the Pooh. I think this means that God has put uh, an understanding of eternity in our hearts, that we were made for more than this. God has placed in our hearts some understanding of endlessness, 
of eternity, that there was an eternal beginning, that there will be no eternal end, so to speak. Words fail us at this point, but there is an endlessness in our hearts. There is a desire from the thing we see on the stage, from the thing we enjoy in our home, that there must be more to life than this. That's what this sentence means. If we set our hearts on anything in this world to define us, to give us a sense of worthwhileness, it always dissatisfies. And so God places in our hearts a longing for more. This world is just a sense of a flower. This world is just pages in a greater book. This world is echoes of a tune we haven't really heard. So what's the tune? What's the tune that we're really longing for? I think the tune that we're singing at the end of the service, I think the tune to mix my metaphors is found in the face of God. That's the tune, found in the face of God. It says in Psalm 16, In thy face, in the face of God, is fullness of joy. In your hand are pleasures forevermore. It's pleasure. Pleasure isn't wrong. It's where's the source of pleasure that's important. Or the Psalm 27. The psalmist says, One thing I seek after, one thing I ask for, I want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. I want to go to his dwelling place, his temple. He's enjoying God more than anything else in this world. He's found the source of endlessness. He's found the source of enjoyment and beauty and pleasure. If you're not yet a Christian, let me show you the difference between enjoying something, finding something pleasurable and beautiful if you're a Christian, and if you're not. If you're a Christian, your attitude towards God and your attitude towards pleasure and beauty is radically different from someone who's not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are not afraid, you're not afraid of enjoying stuff because you see everything in this world as part of God's beautiful creation for us to enjoy. It's a beautiful world to enjoy. But they don't define us. And we are wise to think of things that would be unhelpful for us. But we engage with the world in a different way. It's just a pointing tool. And so think about it this way. As we engage with the world and as we relate to God as Christians, as opposed to non-Christians, we don't relate to God because we find him useful. He's not a genie that we rub when we want something in our life. We relate to God intimately as Christians because he's beautiful to us. That's the difference. One of the signs that you become a Christian is that you see not just God as a reality, you enjoy his beauty. You don't just know about him, you know him intimately. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Someone who sees God as useful, you obey God because you think if you don't, he's going to get you, he's going to zap you from heaven. He's going to smite you. But someone who becomes a Christian is someone who doesn't fear God in that way. They understand that God is awesome and majestic and powerful, but also that in Jesus, God has come on a rescue mission. And so we enjoy God and we marvel at his beauty. We obey him because we want to bring him delight and pleasure. That's what the gospel is about. It talks in the language of beauty and pleasure. The gospel can be described in this way. For the beauty of the world was tainted by sin, our rebellion. It became marred, it became unbeautiful. There is still so much to enjoy, but it's marred by our rebellion. Genesis 3 tells us that. 
And so the only way that God would provide a way back to him, because he has to take all the initiative, is for his darling son of God to become unbeautiful. That's what Isaiah chapter 3, 53 teaches us. It says that he had no beauty in him that should be desired of him. On the cross and before the cross, the son of God, the perfect son of God, who was there at the beginning of creation, who will be there at the end when time is wrapped up, he was smited. He was bruised, he was battered, he was torn apart, he became unrecognisable, he became unbeautiful. So that, that's the first half of the Gospel, so that we who are rebels, we whose hearts are unbeautiful because of our sin, we can be made lovely and acceptable in his sight by faith in Jesus. Because of Jesus being ripped apart, we who don't deserve it, who ripped apart the world, can be brought back to God. And not just that, we're not just made better people by faith in Jesus, we're made new people. We're not just made uh, acceptable people, we're made beautiful in God's sight. Long Christian friend, if you haven't seen this before, you'll never understand why Christians come around a table that we will in a minute and seek to understand the gospel more, seek to enjoy God and see his beauty more as we take bread and wine until you see your lostness, until you see your rebelliousness, then you'll see that Jesus isn't someone just to be understood, he's someone to be adored and admired and enjoyed. But that will never happen until you see his lostness, your lostness and his beauty. As Augustine who said many centuries ago, all of us have loves in our hearts. The problem is we need to love God more and we need to reorder our loves. That's what it means to become a Christian. You, that could happen even this morning. But friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, before we go to the Lord's table, before we celebrate <coughs> communion together, there are some of us who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling with addiction to something. I'm a Christian, I became a Christian a while ago, but something has creeped in into my heart and into my affection. So actually, I'd rather do that in the first thing in the morning than to get up and enjoy God. It's changed my heart and changed my marriage and, and whatever else. What about you? Well, if that's you, friend, like me, you need to begin again. And three steps for you. First of all, you need to get back to knowing who God is. Whether your heart's grown cold or whether he's no longer your first love. You know what to do. You need to go back to first principles, back to the Bible, and find out who God is for the first time. You read a gospel again. You're not just reading about him, you want to know him. That's the first thing to do. The second thing is to reboot your prayer life. Prayer is how we engage with the king of the universe. It's a very intimate act, and it's a lifelong experience of growth and intimacy. You see, through prayer, your fragility and God's power. You see your lostness and God's certainty and his preciousness. All of that comes through prayer. You need to get back to knowing who God is through reading the Bible. You need to get back to enjoying God and speaking to him, communing with him through prayer. Thirdly, you need to ask the Holy Spirit afresh to help you and assist you in your time of need. That's what he's there for. In John's Gospel, there's a famous passage that describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the Spirit comes, Jesus says, the Spirit, he will glorify me. He will take of mine and he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. He's like a, 
It's like a spotlight. It's like a halogen bulb that says, look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at his sufficiency. Look at his power. Look at how ugly he became for the glory of his Father and for your ultimate good. Enjoy him. Appreciate him. Know him. It's the experience of the beauty of Jesus as he died on the cross, the power of the cross, and knowing him personally. 